0: Cult. And the people surrounding him, they're not proud dignitaries. They are, they are um, poor indigents, mostly, for the most part. He will not be crowned with jewels. He will be crowned with thorns. Folks, such a, such a king, if he were announced today, he, he would be a, a petty embarrassment to any nation that would present him. A very simple humble presentation of a king. Isaiah 53 verse 2 says this, He had no stately form or majesty that we should look upon Him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to Him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised, and we did not esteem him. You know, oxymoronically, really, uh, this day in history, the triumphal entry of Christ was a very humble, royal coronation. A humble, royal coronation of a king. But despite his modest entrance, it it did appear to at least start out in the right way. At least started out right On this day. Let's read about it beginning in Luke chapter 19, verse 28. After Jesus had said these things, he was going on ahead, going to Jerusalem. When he approached Bethphage and Bethany, near the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village ahead of you. There, as you enter, you will find a colt on which no one yet has ever sat, untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away, uh, sent went away and found it just as Jesus had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? They said, the Lord has need of it. They brought it to Jesus and they threw their coats on the colt, and put Jesus on it. As he was going, they were spreading their coats on the road, and as soon as he was approaching near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all of the miracles which they had seen, shouting, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest." Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But Jesus answered, I tell you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. Remember that phrase. If these become silent, the stones will cry out. I have a few photos here, just to show you the path of this which Jesus took. This first one is in the lower corner here. i got a little red pointer That would have been approximate Bethany, where Jesus started as he progressed uh, on this day up towards this would be the Mount of Olives. Bethphage, they aren't really certain where that is. That doesn't exist anymore today, but that's an estimation. Here's the Mount of Olives, and as you go into Jerusalem, here is the Temple Mount, right here on this side. Uh, Today there is the Dome of the Rock. That Islam has sitting on that Temple Mount because the temple itself was destroyed in 70 AD. But this, this path here, uh, all in all, is about two miles. That's it, two miles. The next picture that I have would show this is Mount Olivet up here, round number one. Going down through the middle is the Valley of Kidron. And then, of course, here is that Temple Mount from the other direction you see the dome of the rock there this is the mount of olives bethany would have been somewhere over here uh, another photo please astounding stuff this would be the the point of uh, ascension of christ they say on the mount of olives they've they've made this shrine here on the mount of Olivet that uh, that would look across at the temple uh, grounds here of course in the kidron valley again in between There's one more that is going to show a a probable view of what Christ was looking at as he descended on that colt of a donkey uh, from the Mount of uh, of Olives. This is the Mount of Olives here. You can see this is the wall of the temple grounds. And he would have progressed down and over to the temple as people were, were praising him. Now think, this area now, this is Passover week, folks. This is bustling with people. Everyone's come in from out of town and they're celebrating. There's all types of of pomp going on. And as he comes down from the Mount of Olives, he is surrounded with people singing, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Isn't that something? What a view as he he progressed towards the temple that we'll see uh, in a couple Sundays from now as we study, he cleanses it. One of his first acts as he goes into Jerusalem. Quite a sight. Folks, they, they've been waiting a thousand years for Christ to come, the, the Israel's Davidic king to show up. And he has arrived now just as the prophet Zechariah said that he would. 600 years, or almost 600 years earlier, the prophet Zechariah uh, stated, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, shout in triumph. O daughter of Jerusalem, behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Isn't that something? That the prophecy, 550 some years before Christ mounted that donkey. And and I I want you to know, these people get it. The people surrounding him get it. Uh... They understand the significance of this moment when they are loudly proclaiming, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of Yahweh. Comes in the name of the Lord. They're singing Psalm 118. It's a messianic psalm of praise. And the parallel accounts of the triumphal entry, you find them in Matthew and in Mark They record, the crowds is also singing these things here, listen to this, Hosanna to the Son of David, and blessed is the coming of our Father David. They got a pretty good idea what this all symbolizes here. I'd like you to realize that that there's no ambiguity as to what the people are seeing, what is happening. You know, people don't just take off their coats and lay them down for another to walk over it, for everybody who walks into Jerusalem. This is a very special event. They're waving palm branches. Folks, they're displaying a symbolic gesture in doing so, and laying down their coats on the road. It's a symbolic gesture of willfully submitting themselves to the, uh, to the arrival and beneath the, the feet of the Messiah. That's what that symbolizes. We are placing ourselves beneath you. Because of the evidence over the last three years, it's been irrefutable that Christ is Messiah. It began when John the Baptist baptized Jesus in the Jordan, his Father in heaven spoke. The Holy Spirit descended upon him like a dove. His miracles and His healings are, as we've studied, precisely what Israel was to expect with the Messiah. The power He exercised over nature, that is, the creative realm, and and, and calming the storm and and other events. his, His power over the natural, created realm, and over the demons, the spiritual realm. They testify to His divine... Glory! Even Luke's opening statements here in in this triumphal entry, what he has written down in the narrative for this event, um, the part where Jesus sends two men to go get the colt that is tied in another town and to bring him, that testifies to his divine omniscience. Uh, Omniscience is a term uh, that means uh, the ability to know everything. Ability, a divine capacity to know everything. Only God Himself has such power. It's only Him. Some who deny that uh, deny Christ's deity and His omniscience. Though we know in Him all the fullness of deity dwelled in bodily form. Right, Christ is God in the flesh. Some denying Christ's deity and His omniscience have tried to dismiss uh, the cult. The, the untying of the colt as a previous arrangement that Jesus had made previously. Uh, think about it though. Think about it. Jesus has been traveling south along the east side of the Jordan River, as we've been studying. He, he comes across uh, and goes to Jericho. So he's coming, Jesus is coming from the east as he progresses, goes through Jericho, has a couple days there, and then proceeds another 16 miles up steep, rugged terrain to Jerusalem, to Bethany where he is now. There were no phones. They didn't have a Pony Express that, that delivered on the same time every day. How would Jesus have planned these events with such precision and detail? Think, think about that. Um, besides, Think of this, why would the exchange about the colt and untying it, and, and what uh, if anyone says to you, that uh, what are you doing with this colt and, and this whole dialogue that is there, why would that exchange even be in the Bible if it were not to reinforce Christ's divinity? Why would it be jotted down? Why would verse 32 also emphasize that those who were sent away found it just as Jesus had told him? Instead, you know, why, why didn't Luke just write, well, somebody brought him a colt? Why, why didn't, because this discussion about the colt, it's, it's found in all three of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It's there in all three. It is important because Scripture doesn't elsewhere include a whole lot of unnecessary and, and extemporaneous material. Scripture doesn't just throw in a lot of filler. Everything there, all Scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching. So it isn't in there for no reason at all. It's included, folks, because it's important and to once again remind us what Jesus has been saying through this whole time, to remind us that He knows exactly what lies ahead of Him. He's predicted His his crucifixion multiple times. He's, He's informed His disciples about it. He knows exactly what lies ahead of Him. And what lies behind him are extraordinary works of power scattered in his wake everywhere that he has gone. Folks, this, this is why the, why the crowds are cheering him. This is the reason they are. Verse 37 alerts us to this. As soon as he was approaching near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice. Why? Why? "...for all of the miracles which they had seen." It's all miracles. They cheered because the miracles impressed them. They were wooed by the miracles. You know, I acknowledge, first off, I acknowledge that these crowds surely do contain a combination of the spiritually faithful and others who are spiritually disloyal. There's always a combination in any group but a few days is going to prove that the majority of these crowds is spiritually disloyal to Christ the majority will call for his crucifixion and and there are two primary reasons two primary reasons that this uh, ultimately disloyal crowd are behaving this way all right why are they behaving this way? As people, people wonder. It's like, why? why are they receiving Him with such joy and gladness? Well, number one, as Scripture has told us, miracles. People love miracles. Not only were the two blind men that Jesus healed in Jericho now, along with uh, this crowd, they had seen these people uh, among their number. The Gospel of John chapter 12 also tells us that between this request for a cult, Between this request that Jesus has that these guys go and get this colt, and before his ride into Jerusalem, that six days prior to Passover, Jesus came to make one final stop in Bethany. Now think back about Bethany. Who do we know that Jesus knows lives in Bethany just outside of Jerusalem a little ways? Well, Bethany was the home of his dear friends, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, right? The, the last of whom, Lazarus, that Jesus recently raised from the dead. So he, he's stopping in with his close friends. Uh, so this stop in Bethany then, if it's six days previous to Passover, is Saturday. This is, this is Saturday um, when he stops in Bethany. Not talking about the triumphal entry. We'll talk about that in a moment. And Scripture is... Impressive as to how John 12 verse three fills in the gaps, telling us how Mary took a pound of very costly perfume and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Astonishing events that you can see in the Gospel of John. And, and while she did this, Judas, Judas Iscariot, the one who would betray Jesus for just you know 30 pieces of silver. He protested what he perceived with Mary's, "This is just a waste of money." And that's, that passage tells us the reason that he protested this is because he was the one who kept the money, he, he, and he would pilfer the treasury, and here's the reason that, that Scripture gives to the reason that he pilfered the treasury. You follow me? Because he did not care about the poor. That's the reason Scripture gives for Judas to to pilfer the treasury. He did not care about the poor. Jesus said, Let her alone. This is in preparation for the day of my burial. Then we are told, A large crowd of the Jews then learned that Jesus was there. Again, this is Saturday. And they came not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom Jesus raised from the dead. Miracles. Miracles. Let's go see Lazarus. We want to see more miracles. Now, Reason number one that they laid down their coats on the road uh, was that they were they were captivated by these miracles. Reason, num- reason number two, that's found in just a few verses previous to this. Luke 19, verse 11. Here's... Reason number two. We we're told that they supposed that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. Remember we studied that? They thought, incorrectly, this is it. They were convinced the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. For many in the crowd, uh, the motive was selfish. They, they wanted to be as close to Jesus as possible, praising Him for when the kingdom appeared. If he's the king, you want to be close to the king when the kingdom appears. Um it's for this reason, or these two reasons, that, that a mostly unbelieving crowd, a mostly unbelieving crowd is projecting joyful praise towards Jesus because they anticipated that he was going to cast off the heavy yoke of Rome, that this was it. He's going to restore the Davidic monarchy and rule Israel. So, so they applauded Him. They applauded Him, praising Him, singing this, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. You'll find that in Matthew 21, verse 9. The, uh, the term that they are heralding, Hosanna. We've sang that since we were little kids, right? This term that they're heralding is found in Matthew 21 and Mark uh, chapter 9. And it is, it is a Hebrew plea. Again, it's found in, in Psalm 118, which sings to God. Get, this, get this, this. Here's what Hosanna means. Save us and save now. Alright? That's Hosanna. The very common word today in many church liturgies. I grew up with one. Maybe some of you here grew up with the same uh, portion of your liturgy. Some of you probably recognize this well. Uh, It's a tune that goes something like this. Holy, holy, holy Lord, God of power and might, heaven and earth are full of your glory. Hosanna 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 in the highest blessed is he who comes in the name of the lord you got to think organ at the end hosanna in the highest right some of you've heard that some of you grew up with that like i did weekly great liturgy Great stuff. That song, that tune, commemorates the triumphal entry of Christ. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. Great stuff. And though many of us, I know myself included, had had no understanding at the time, what we were essentially singing each Sunday was save us, save us, Save us now, Jesus! Folks, how spiritually dead did we have to be to not get it? Think about this. And and though my family's church, at that time where I grew up, it it displayed little evidence of spiritual life, little evidence of salvation, most of us saying that repeatedly, week after week, year after year, without even recognizing what we're saying. I, I didn't even know what I was saying when I was singing that as a youth. Um, were there a few Christians amongst us? I imagine there were. In that little church, I imagine there was a remnant there. But most of us, you know, include, including the adults, were merely reciting what we had been taught since our, our youth. I had never been convinced of my sinful state, my separation from God. In fact, most of us children uh, that I grew up with, we were convinced by our parents and then affirmed by the clergy of just, of just how wonderfully gro- good and great kids we are. That's what we grew up thinking, is we're, we're just so good. In fact, our impression was, many of us is just like, well, that's, that's why Jesus is coming to get us, because we're just so good. We weren't taught any different. We thought Jesus loved us because of our goodness. That church though was spiritually dead. It's like it's like the church in Sardis. Don't think that these churches don't exist today. Church in Sardis where the Lord tells us they're dead and he's calling for them, wake up. Wake up. You're you're just going through the motions. This exposes one reason that uh, George Tiller, he was a doctor, a famed late-term abortion doctor. He was shot to death outside of his congregation in Wichita in 2009. Many of you remember this. Uh, He was memorialized by his church afterward as being such a good person. One of the premier late-term abortionists in America. and He he was a member of in good standing. He was a usher there every week and they, they memorialized him. Tiller's Church, it remains part of the same denomination that I grew up in. That was, that was the thinking of where I grew up. Represents almost almost 10,000 local congregations in America with a membership of 3.4 million who to this day Repeat the same liturgy. Just as we always did. How is that possible? How is it possible? How can myriads of people sing, Hosanna! Save us! Save us! Save now, Lord Jesus! Well, the vast majority have never experienced genuine salvation. Folks, this is exactly what's happening in our passage. Exactly what's happening in our passage. The Jews who had made up this crowd, or or this crowd consisted of, of, had been taught to recite Psalm 18 since they were a child. And they're reciting this. But most of them were not convicted of their sins. Most of them were not concerned that they were separated from a holy and righteous God. So as they sang, they were not hoping for Jesus to save them from their sins but to save them from their situation that's what they wanted Jesus to save them from friends I hope that everyone here has recognized that faith it is not something you automatically inherit from your parents that you can merely recite as an empty ritual I don't have a problem with liturgy. In fact, I'm kind of drawn to it. I, I kind of like it. I like liturgy. Um, I don't have a problem with it unless it's only liturgy. Unless that's it. You're just reciting it. I don't have a problem with celebrating the Lord's Supper every month unless it is only a ritual, a dead ritual, ritual of communion. You know, folks, I pray for every person here that Christianity is not just a ritual that you've been taught since you were young. I hope it is something, uh, not that you uh, inherited as a tradition, but an inheritance of the kingdom. That you truly believe that not only is Christ King, but that He is Savior. Because most of these in Jerusalem who are singing these praises they're going to turn on him in a few days. They're going to turn bad on him. Because they're going to soon be embarrassed by Jesus. These crowds that lauded his arrival, they're soon going to be squarely embarrassed at him. And this is because they not only recognized his power to do divine miracles, they assumed he was going to use that power to overthrow Rome. That's what they thought he was going to do. They thought they were going to be saved from their situation. They were convinced the Davidic kingdom, they were convinced it was going to appear immediately. That's what they were thinking. Scripture tells us that. Because they recognized the messianic evidence. Miracles. uh, Great things that Jesus had done. Riding in on the donkey colt. They recognized it. What other evidence did they have? This is a good one here. Try to hang with me. There's a little bit of detail here, but this is is good stuff. I don't know, thinking of other evidence that these people had of the Messiah coming, I don't know how good they were at math. I imagine that many of them are better than us, because we're dependent on a calculator, right? I don't know exactly how many or how good they were at calculating, calculating precise math, but if some had calculated it, word had gotten through the crowds, that they had calculated, it is time for Messiah to come. I I think here, what we're seeing here, I think their hopes are incredibly high. Incredibly high for Jesus. Why did they expect the kingdom to appear immediately? Well, it's because of a prophecy from Daniel chapter 9 that promised that Messiah the prince would ride into Jerusalem 483 years after an edict by Cyrus he was a king of Persia, after that edict was enforced by King Artaxerxes, allowing the rebuilding of Jerusalem. And that decree you can find in Second Chronicles chapter 36 and Ezra chapter one. But there was a prophecy, 48three years before the Messiah, the Prince, would ride into Jerusalem. Folks, Israel could do the math. They could do the math. People knew it was about time for the Messiah, according to two of the most detailed chronologies of Israel's history. Two of the best here. One is compiled by Sir Robert Anderson. You might have heard his name of being a, a commissioner uh, at the Metropolitan Police Department in London. He was he was an investigative sleuth, strong Christian, but he was an investigative sleuth that just loved to go into details and calculations. And he wrote a book. I think it's titled, if I remember right, "The Coming Prince," with with all of the the timeline and chronology laid out in detail, and what options there might be for Christ arriving in in Jerusalem. Another is by Harold Honer. He just passed away recently, but he was a professor of New Testament studies at Dallas Theological Seminary. Brilliant man, who also compiled a chronology that very closely lined up with with Sir Robert Anderson. But their their combination, and and they're in harmony, from what I understand, the chronology is that there are only three reasonable dates. Three reasonable dates. For a fulfillment to Daniel's prophecy. One of these Passovers fell or falls on for them, it fell, thirty-two AD. A second was in thirty-three AD, and a third possible date was A. D. thirty. According to John MacArthur, who has sorted through all of this with detail, you don't you don't think I just sit back there with charts and right? But these, these men are brilliant and they've gone into great detail into studying these resources and maps and calendars. You think of the calendars, you have to, have to be able to understand because Persia had a different calendar than the Hebrews had. So the calculation of day is just slightly off. Just like the Gregorian calendar that we're on right now. We had a leap year this year. It adds in a day. And some calendars are based more on the rotation of the sun. Others factor in the moons, Right? So depending upon which calendars are fitting into place there with Daniel's prophecy, the most probable date of Christ's triumphal entry is the 10th day of the month of Nisan, A.D. 30. The 10th of Nisan, A.D. 30. And if their calculations are accurate or correct, as Jesus rode into Jerusalem, It would have been 483 years, just as prophesied by Daniel, to the day. To the day. Precisely. And because the crowds are waving the palm branches and laying them down on the road, and as Jesus is riding into Jerusalem, this day would become memorialized as a holiday by the church, for centuries, and we refer to it as Palm Monday. No? It's not Palm Monday? Why not? Why isn't it Palm Monday? Stay with me for a second. Where does Scripture insist that Jesus rode in on the colt on Sunday before Passover. It doesn't, folks. It doesn't. Palm Sunday has been celebrated as a church tradition, a very fruitful tradition for, since the 4th century A.D. All right? But the Bible doesn't say Jesus made his triumphal entry on the first day of the week. Now don't blow your gasket just yet. Hold, stick with me. Stick with me. We're, we're going to wrap this up. Scripture doesn't specify a particular day. Church tradition has specified a particular day. But in fact, the chronology actually works out better if Jesus rides in. Think of these dates now. If Jesus rides in on Monday, the 10th day of the month of Nisan. That'd be a Monday. Four days before Passover, which fell on the 14th. So a ride in on the 10th, Passover, crucifixion, on Friday, the 14th. Get this. During the Exodus, when, they, when God was going to free His people Israel, the 10th day of the month of Nisan, the 10th day of the month was when God commanded Moses to require Israel to select their lamb required for sacrifice. On the 10th of Nisan, Moses was commanded, Tell Israel, choose your lamb. And even up until this time in Jerusalem, celebrating the Passover, it is on Monday when the Jews select the lamb, all right? Interesting data there. Listen to this. This is from Exodus 12, verse 3, where God told Moses, Remember now, 30 AD, Monday was on the 10th. Passover was on the 14th. But in Exodus 12, verse 3, God told Moses, Speak to all of the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of the month, they are each one to take a lamb for themselves, according to their father's households, a lamb for each household. And verse 6 says this, You shall keep it until the fourteenth day of the same month, then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel is to kill it. Isn't that something? Pick it out on Monday, kill it on Friday. Those dates of the 10th and the 14th fell exactly on those days in A.D. 30. Um, just like the Exodus. Just like when Israel was returning from captivity. Captivity. This is when Israel now came back from activity. They were repopulating Jerusalem. In, the 30, uh, in 30 AD, Monday fell on the 10th. Jesus was crucified on Passover that year on the 14th. And it has been calculated that if Jesus rode in on Monday, it would have been, as I said, precisely 483s, exactly as Daniel had prophesied uh, centuries earlier. Hmm would have been celebrated precisely as God commanded Israel during the Exodus. They would have been celebrating it as Christ came into Jerusalem. Choose your lamb. On Friday, kill it. Pretty, pretty amazing uh, data. Now, now I'm, not going, I'm not trying to push anyone here to abandon your tradition of Palm Sunday. That's not what I'm trying to do. Hold hold tight to that tradition. That, that's fine. We can celebrate that. I'll refer to it as that. That is great. But what I would like you to recognize through all of this uh, is that when Jesus rode into Jerusalem, Israel knew it had been 483 years. They knew it was time for the Messiah, the Prince, to come. And they this this would have caused, as Jesus came down the Mount of Olives in that photo that we saw earlier, and moving towards the temple ground, there would have been an enormous stir in Jerusalem. It would have been, it would have been the people would have been, would have been going like a music festival out in Okeechobee. It would, have been, it would have been crazy. People anticipating what is going to come. Enormous stir when Jesus came riding in on the colt. It would cause, actually... Jesus' riding in on this day would cause such an uproar among the people that the Pharisees, who really didn't believe much of anything about Jesus, the Pharisees were concerned that Jesus was going to get them all killed. And all of this messianic fervor would, would, would trigger a revolt against Rome. Because people were expecting an overthrow of Rome. Uh, The Pharisees were concerned that there would be a zealot uprising. And there were a bunch of zealots back then who wanted just such a thing. They wanted to poke. And they wanted to cause an uprising in order to to cast off Rome. That would have been an uprising that the Pharisees knew at that time would have caused Rome to crush Jerusalem. The Roman armies would have crushed Jerusalem. Jerusalem. In fact this all happened a zealous uprising provoked by the zealots a Roman uh, uh, crushing of Jerusalem all happened in 70 AD. That's when the temple was destroyed. The Roman armies came in and crushed them. Just as what the Pharisees were concerned about with Jesus riding in. They're like he's going to get us all killed. This is why verse 39 tells us that some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Quiet. And this isn't only because the Pharisees would have viewed this triumphal entry of Jesus as blasphemous. You know, This, is, this isn't right that he's doing this. Um, also, they thought it would be hazardous to their health. They, they really were concerned. The Pharisees, remember, they had a pretty soft gig. We've learned enough about them. They had a soft gig. You know, life was good for them. They're, for the most part, successful people. Financially, they did pretty well. They were well respected in the community because of their position. They weren't ready to die for freedom, they weren't ready to cast off Rome. They didn't, they didn't want Jerusalem to be crushed and for them to lose their, their gig for what they viewed as a false Christ. No way. He said, "Shut this down! Shut this down! Something had to be done. Something had to be done quickly to silence this crowd and to silence this king before Passover, or at Passover. They don't. Everybody's going to get killed. You know, you might be not might not be surprised that Jerusalem the Pharisees fear that the armies are going to crush them. It's uh, that is, was a really." Um, really genuine fear that instigate, instigated this plot to kill Jesus, this conspiracy, from the beginning. The fear of Rome is, is a big part of what instigated this plot to kill Jesus from the beginning. Fear explains what's going on through the minds of the Pharisees. John chapter 11, verse 47. This is a little earlier now. This isn't the Passion Week. But listen to this. We read, The chief priests... And the Pharisees convened a council and were saying, what are we doing? For this man is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place, meaning position, and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man die for the people and that the whole nation not perish. Scripture says, Now Caiaphas did not say this on his own initiative, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation and not for the nation only, but in order that he might gather together into one the children of God who are scattered abroad, So from that day on, they planned to kill him. Caiaphas, he's prophesying, doesn't even recognize it. The people are listening. You know what? He's saying, it's better that this man die than for the whole nation to perish. That's what they're thinking when he rides into Jerusalem. It's better that he die than all of us die. They didn't recognize that when he died, now you have an opportunity to live. They they killed the king to preserve their own lives. Which completely contradicts what Jesus taught in Luke 17, which says, whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it. But whoever loses it for my sake and for the Gospels, he will save it. They didn't want to give up their life. And because they were so preoccupied trying to preserve this life, verse 44 Uh, tells us that they did not recognize the time of of his visitation. They didn't recognize the day of their visitation. They're too busy trying to hold on to this life. That's going to be our passage next week as as we go into the next verses. As Christ weeps over Israel in, in the office of a prophet, and he weeps because Israel, they sought to preserve this life and were unwilling to lose it to receive eternal life Um, most would not truly receive him as their king most would not even though there was irrefutable evidence think of these things they would not receive him as king even though there was irrefutable evidence they had been taught about his miracles or seen them his miracles and wonders they had heard the gospel preached They saw their king ride into Jerusalem on a donkey's colt, and through his death, burial, and resurrection, many other specific prophecies in Scripture were fulfilled with with astonishing precision, by the way. Yet after all of this, they still refused to believe. Lord, let that not describe anybody here today amongst us. You've been told the truth. You know that he is king receive him today. I'm going to invite the